Hey, if you have a Bible with you, I want you to take and open up to the book of Romans. We're finishing up this book. We've been working our way through it. I think this is about 138 sermons we've done so far. So it's Romans 15. We're going to look at verses 25 to 28 for a sermon I've entitled Christian Giving. Romans 15, 25 to 28. But I'm going to back up to 22 just to get some uh, context. This is Paul speaking. He says this. For this reason, I have often been prevented from coming to you. But now, with no further place for me in these regions, since I have for many years been longing to come to you, whenever I go to Spain, for I hope to see you in passing and to be helped on my way there by you when I uh, have first enjoyed your company for a while. And then our passage this morning. But now I am going to Jerusalem serving the saints, uh, for Macedonia and Achaia have been pleased to make a contribution for the poor among the saints of Jerusalem. Yes, they were pleased to do so, and they were indebted to them. For if the Gentiles have shared in their spiritual blessings, they are indebted to minister to them in material things. Therefore, when I was, uh, have finished this, and I've put my seal on their fruit, I will go by the, uh, you, or go on by way of you to Spain. And I know I will, when I come, I will come to you in the fullness of the blessing of Christ. You know, it's been said that uh, when a person becomes a believer, there are three conversions that take place. The conversion of their heart, the conversion of their head, and the conversion of their hip pocket. Now, the heart needs to be converted because, as it says in Jeremiah seventeen nine, the heart is deceitful above all else and desperately sick. Who can understand it? The heart, which is the center of our will and affections, is naturally self-centered and unwilling to submit itself to God's will. Indeed, in Ezekiel 36, 26 to 27, God speaking of conversion, uh, is speaking of conversion when he puts it this way. He says, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit in you and I will move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. Now, so radical is this heart change brought about by God's spirit that Jesus described it as being born again. Well, the second conversion that needs to take place, though, is that of the head. Um, that begins immediately after our hearts have been converted. Now, the conversion of the head, I mean uh, our way of thinking. As it says in Proverbs 23, 7, as a man thinks in his heart, so he is. Our actions flow out of our understanding. So if our thinking is stinking, our actions will be amiss. I mean, if a man thinks that his value or worth depends on what he accomplishes in his career or how much money he makes, then he will be a slave to his job going in every time they call him. Even if his marriage suffers and his kids are neglected, his workaholic ways will continue until he changes his way of thinking. Now, so much of what a pastor does in teaching and preaching is trying to dislodge false ideas that people hold and replace them with the truth of God's word. And that's what Paul was speaking of earlier in Romans 12, too, when we saw him say this, Do not be conformed to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you might be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. Now, that third conversion, the conversion of the hip pocket, that speaks of a man's wallet. Uh, That is, when a person gets saved, when he's truly converted, it shows itself in the way he spends his money. And Jesus said, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. All people spend money on what they consider valuable. People reveal what they value, what they treasure, by how they spend their money. So your spending habits are a good barometer of your spiritual priorities. I suppose that's why Jesus talks so often about the issue of money. I mean, he advised his followers not to fret over money. 
He said, therefore, I tell you, do not worry about life, about what you will eat and what you'll drink or your body, what you shall wear. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothes? I mean, look at the birds of the air. They do not sow or reap or store away in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? Can any of you, by worrying, add a single hour to your life? He told us not to make a god of money. He said, no one can serve two masters. Either you'll hate the one and love the other, or you'll be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. He told us to invest it for eternity. He said, but store up for yourself treasure in heaven where moth and vermin do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. He also told us to be generous in giving it away. He said, give and it will be given to you. A good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over and poured into your lap. For with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. And when God's people gladly and generously give to the cause of Christ, it not only shows that their hip pockets have been converted, but they share in the very character of God who richly supplies us with all things to enjoy. Well, I suppose it's for that reason that Paul was so thrilled that he could bring that relief offering to the Jewish believers in Jerusalem that had been collected from the Gentile believers in Macedonia and Achaia. Now, Paul mentions this offering and passing it to the Romans as he tells them of his upcoming travel plans. And we touched on these verses lightly last week, but I mentioned I wanted to come back and really zero in on the verses to uh, see what happened in this event. And then we want to broaden our horizons a little bit to consider some of the principles we find here and elsewhere in the scripture related to Christian giving. So why don't we pray and we'll get into the text and see what God would have us learn today. Our Father and God, I do pray for grace and mercy as we look at this. Um, Jesus talked a lot about money because uh, it reveals a lot about us. So we pray that you'd help us as we look at these verses. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, to outline the sermon, I think we can use two broad headings relating to this offering which Paul was bringing to Jerusalem. For the first, you can just write down the words, the event, the event. And for the second, you can write down the principles, the principles, the event. Now, by the way, what's an event? Well, Merriam-Webster's dictionary defines it as a thing that happens, especially of importance. An event center is a big building which is used to hold dances or wedding parties, maybe hog calling contests. Well, maybe not. But Suzanne and Nathan and I were at a wedding just a few weeks back, and it was held in an old barn that had been converted into an event center. I mean, it looked nice, but it was just freezing cold. There was no insulation in the barn, no heat for the guests. It warmed up when they put the 150 guests up in the haymow, but then they opened the door on the side to let fresh air in. Fresh, cold air in? Now, it might seem strange to label the mere collection of an offering as an event, but then again, maybe not, considering we defined it as a thing that happens, especially one of importance. Now, Paul thought this offering that had been collected for the Gen- or by the Gentiles uh, for the Jews in Jerusalem was of great importance. He mentions this collection, again, look at starting in verse 24. But now I'm going to Jerusalem serving the saints. For Macedonia and Achaia have been pleased to make contributions for the poor among the saints of Jerusalem. Now, one of the delusions of those who are on the political left is the idea that all people can and should be equal when it comes to income and wealth. I mean, you know how that argument goes. Do you think it's fair that some people have so much and others so little? Look at Elon Musk. He has $265 billion. They're single moms living in Minneapolis who barely have enough to feed their kids. We should take the money away from rich, fat, cat billionaires and redistribute it to others so that all of us can be equal. The rich need to start paying their fair share. Well, a couple of questions you should always ask when someone puts forth this line of argumentation. First of all, who are you defining as rich? And secondly, what would you say is a fair share? Now, usually when a person speaks of the rich, 
He means anyone who makes more than they do. I used to work with a guy at the dairy who thought the rich should be forced to pay their fair share, uh, to share their wealth with people like, well, him. But when I suggested that as an American, he was far wealthier than, say, someone from Ghana, Africa, and therefore they should be entitled to part of his paycheck, well, he didn't agree with that. And what is paying a fair share? According to the Tax Foundation, as drawn from data from the IRS, did you know that the top 1% of taxpayers pay 25.6% average individual income tax rate, which is more than seven times higher than taxpayers in the bottom 50% who pay 3.5%. Did you know that the top 10% of earners pay 71% of all the taxes in this country? The top 25% pay 87% of all the income taxes. And the top 50% of all taxpayers pay 97% of all individual income taxes, while the bottom 50% pay only the remaining 3%. The top 1% pay a greater share of the individual income tax, 38.8%, than the bottom 90% combined, which is 29.2%. Now, this sermon is about Christian giving, not about government taxes, but I wanted to make a simple point. There are many reasons that can account for the differences of wealth and income among people, besides some kind of injustice. I mean, it depends on where you live, where you work, if you work, how hard you work, your education, your IQ, your family background, sometimes just plain uh, dumb luck. And even if you do make a great deal of money, you still might end up poor. Remember the boxer, Mike Tyson? He estimated, uh, had an estimated earnings of $400 million over his career, and yet he ended up losing all of it and living in a homeless shelter. And we do not know why these Christian believers in Jerusalem were struggling, but I don't think it was likely that they were lazy. I mean, Paul told the Thessalonians that if anyone's unwilling to work, neither let him eat. There's to be no loaf for the loafers. Well, whatever the reason, these Jerusalem believers were struggling, and when the Christians in Macedonia and Achaia heard about it, they wanted to help. Yes, they were pleased, Paul says, to do so. So no arm twisting by Paul, no pulling of heartstrings on these Gentiles. Rather, Paul evidently just made the, known, uh, the need known to uh, the Gentiles in those two regions, and they decided to give some help. Now, Christian giving always has to be voluntary for it to be truly Christian. I mean, even in the Old Testament, when God gave commands to the Israelites to be generous to the poor and let them glean in their fields the things that had, uh, the produce that had fallen by the wayside, if an Israelite refused that kind of charity, he was held accountable to God, but there was no civil penalty applied. A lot of politicians think that it's compassion for a government to force people, uh, for, uh, to forcefully take money from one person's paycheck and transfer it to another person with the hope that the second person will vote for him. I mean, they, they rob Peter to pay Paul, hoping that Paul will vote for them to keep him in power. Now, back in 1984, Walter Mondale ran against uh, Ronald Reagan for the president. Mondale was a liberal who argued that the government should increase welfare payments because that's the compassionate thing to do. Reagan, on the other hand, said, no, that's best left to the private sector. But a little while later, when their tax returns were released from the previous year, we found out that Reagan had given away only 1% of his income to various charities, and Mondale, he gave even less, one half of a percent. I remember thinking at the time, neither of them put their money where their mouth is. You see, it's not charity if you're forced to give it up as a matter of coercion. But Paul says that there's a sense in which the Gentile Christians still owed this help to the Jewish believer. 
Look what he says. He goes on to say this. And they are, meaning the Gentiles, are indebted to them. For if the Gentiles have shared in their spiritual things, they are indebted to minister to them also in material things. You see, these Gentiles, humanly speaking, were saved because Jewish believers, including those in Jerusalem, had sent out, supported, and prayed for missionaries who went out to the Gentiles. They were spiritually enriched by salvation. Was it so much to ask then that they helped these Jewish believers, uh, brothers and sisters, with material resources? Paul didn't think so. And praise God, neither did the Gentile believers in Macedonia or Acacia. So Paul says, therefore, when I finish this and I've put my seal on their fruit of theirs, I will go to visit you by way of Spain. Well, that brings us to our second point, though, the principles. The principles. (laughs) When I was in elementary school, one of my teachers gave us a little tip to remember the difference between the word principal and principal. She said, principal is the head of a school, like our principal, uh, Mr. Tesdale. He's your pal, principal. Well, I was suspicious of that then, and even more so later when I got sent down to Mr. Tesdale's office for selling candy on the playground. Well, principles are, according to one definition, are the rules of conduct, the rules or code of conduct. Well, what are the rules for Christian giving? What is the conduct laid out in the scripture that we're supposed to follow? Well, there's a lot of places to draw from in the scripture. We won't have time to look at all of them, but we can start by turning to 2 Corinthians chapter 8. 2 Corinthians chapter 8. This is a second letter to the Corinthians, which was written by Paul before he wrote the letter to the Romans and before he brought that offering made by the Gentiles to the Jews in Jerusalem. Well, in Romans, when Paul mentions the Christians from Achaia, he's speaking about the Corinthian believers. Achaia was the region where Corinth was located. And here in chapter 8, he's dealing with a situation that arose regarding this offering. The the Corinthian believers pledged the money, but they actually hadn't given it yet. Paul would be arriving in Corinth soon, and he wanted to make sure that the church would be ready with their offering that they said they were going to take up. Now look over to the next chapter, though, in chapter 9, 1 to 5. This kind of sets it up. Here's what he says. He says, For it's superfluous for me to write to you about this ministry to the saints, for I know your readiness, of which I boasted about you to the Macedonians, namely that an Achaia has been prepared since last year, and your zeal has stirred up most of them. In other words, Paul was bragging about how the Corinthians were going to give this gift, and he was saying this to the Macedonians, and the Macedonians were excited that the Corinthians were going to give generously. But I have sent the brethren in order that our boasting about you may not be empty in this case, so that I, as I was saying, you will be prepared. In other words, when I come there, I want you to be prepared with this offering. Otherwise, if any Macedonians come with me and find you unprepared, not to speak of you, it says we, not only to speak of we, but also you, will be put to shame by this confidence. So I thought it necessary to urge the brethren that they would go ahead to you and arrange beforehand that you, uh, what you previously promised, that bountiful gift, so that you would be ready as to a bountiful gift, not affected by covetousness. So one principle that we already have coming out of this is simply this. If you give, follow through on what you pledge. I mean, don't be a cloud without rain, one promising showers of blessings, but then passing over leaving dry clods of dirt. I mean, you don't have to give. But once you say that you will, you need to do it. But here, let's go back to the beginning of chapter 8 of 2 Corinthians and see if we can draw some principles out as we read through it. I think we can as we look at these verses. So the first thing that we have to ask, though, is how shall we give? How shall we give? And the first thing we learn is that we should give generously. Look at what he says. 
Now, brethren, we wish to make known to you the grace of God, which has been given to the churches of Macedonia, that in a great ordeal of affliction, their abundance of joy and their deep poverty overflowed into the wealth of liberality. Now, notice this uh, generosity on the part of the Macedonian Christians was evidence of God's grace working in their lives. I mean, they really were saved as evidenced by the fact that not only their hearts, but their hip pockets had been converted. And it wasn't because they had a lot of cash to spare. They weren't living on easy street. They were experiencing, Paul said, a great ordeal of affliction, probably persecution, and deep poverty, and yet they were filled with an abundance of joy. The Macedonians, Christians, were not waiting for times to get better, life to be a little less stressful before they gave generously. Instead, their own suffering made them even more compassionate and sympathetic towards others. And honestly, that's one of the reasons why God allows his people to go through tough times, so that we'd be more sensitive to the struggles of others. So, second thing, though, we learn from this passage is we're to give sacrificially. Look what he says. For I testify that according to their ability and beyond their ability, they gave. I remember a number of years ago, Bill and Hillary Clinton made it into the news when their tax returns were made public. For charitable donations, they donated old clothes, including some underwear, uh, for which they took a generous tax write-off. Now, I don't know if they correctly valued their old undies but uh, by giving them away uh, and then deducting them, but uh, I would guess if you're giving away something that you would otherwise throw away, you really can't consider that sacrificial giving. Well, the third thing that's we find from here is that we're supposed to give earnestly as well, earnestly. Look at what he says. They gave of their own accord, begging with us, uh, with much urging for the favor of participation in the support of the saints. Oh, please, please let us give to this cause, they were saying. I mean, Paul didn't have to twist their arms. You don't have to twist arms of people like that. You don't have to tug on heartstrings or promise to run their name across the bottom of the screen. You don't even have to send them a coffee mug that says, I gave. Do you remember that scene? In the end of the movie, It's a Wonderful Life, George Bailey wished he had never been born, and the angel granted him his wish. And he, he sees what the town would have become uh, if he had never been born in the first place. And finally, uh, uh, the angel allows George to go back. And though he's still facing arrest for bank fraud, even though he hadn't committed, he's so happy just to be back with his family. But then the door opens, and all the Friends come pouring into his house. It's Christmas Eve. And as they pour out, as they do, Uncle Billy pours out a pile of money. And he says, isn't it wonderful? See, see, see oh, so many friends, George. Mary did it. Mary did it. She told some friends that you were, you were in trouble and they scattered all over town collecting money. Didn't anyone ask any questions, George? They just said, George is in trouble. And all of his friends and family bring in and add to the pile. That's the kind of earnest giving these past Macedonian Christians had done. Fourth thing, though, is we should give as an outworking of our commitment to Christ. Look what it says in verse 5. It says, And this, not only we, as we had expected, but they first gave themselves to the Lord and to us by the will of God. Five, we should give as a response to what God has given to us in Christ. I mean, isn't Jesus himself the ultimate example of self-sacrifice and generous giving? For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for our sake he became poor, Paul said, so that through his poverty we might become rich. Out of the ivory palaces, into this world of woe, only his great eternal love 
made my Savior go. His love has no limits. His grace has no measure. His power has no boundaries known unto men. For out of his infinite riches in Jesus, he giveth and giveth and giveth again. Now turn over to chapter 9 in 2 Corinthians. Look at verse 7. In this verse, we find another principle related to how we're to give. Here's what he says. He says, Each one must do just as he's purposed in his own heart, not grudgingly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. From this verse, we can draw a couple more principles. The first one is this. We should give thoughtfully. It says, Just as each one has purpose in his own heart. I mean, each person needs to make up their own mind as to how much they will give. It's between you and the Lord. Now, in our church, the trustees count the offering, not the elders. I, as a pastor, have no idea what anyone in this church gives, and I want it that way. Now, here's a question, though. Should Christians tithe off their income? Now, a tithe means giving 10% of your wages. Well, Abraham gave a tenth of the spoils that he got to Melchizedek, the priest of God in Salem. Jacob vowed uh, to God that if he watched over him, Jacob would give God one-tenth of all that he made. And under the Mosaic law, the Israelites were required to give a tenth from their wealth. But when you get to the New Testament, you don't find a specific command to give a tithe. So should Christians tithe? Well, personally, I think it's a good starting point. I mean, do you think that those of us who live under the New Covenant with so many more spiritual blessings than they had in the Old Testament should actually give less than they did? I mean, I encourage people to tithe because it, it holds you accountable to give systematically rather than sporadically. You know, according to the nonprofit source website, only 3 to 5% of Americans who give to their local churches do so through tithing. When surveyed, 17% of Americans stated that they actually did tithe regularly. So somebody's deceiving themselves. Christians are giving at 2.5% of their income now, but during the Great Depression, they were giving an average of 3.3%. And 37% of church regular church attenders in evangelical churches say they don't give money to the church. Now, I would guess, but I don't know, that most of the believers in our church tithe. But here's another question. What if you attend this church or the church where you're at, and you're not actually a believer. Should you still give? Well, unless you're a Christian, and until you become a Christian, you will get no eternal reward for your giving. I mean, unbelievers can't store up treasure in heaven until they've trusted in Christ first as their ticket to heaven. And you cannot buy salvation. It comes as grace. But does that mean that if you're attending a church and you know you're an unbeliever, you should not give? Well, I think the answer is no. Actually, you, you still should give. As long as the money that you're giving is coming from some uh, honest source, not something sinful, we don't want money coming from mobsters and drug dealers. But if you are an unbeliever and you're listening to this today over the internet or at your church, I mean, do you value what you're hearing right now? Are you glad that you're hearing the truth? Does it matter for those of you in our church that you have people who are praying for you regularly, who love you? Well, the church has to be supported. I know that some of you in our church who aren't believers give generously to our church. Some of you tithe. Plus, God gives out of common grace blessings to those who are generous. I mean, a few Japanese are Christians, but does God not bless that nation for the fact that they honor their fathers and mothers more than other culture? Of course they do. Now, temporarily, 
God's earthly blessings can come even to those who are outwardly conformed to God's law. So if you're an unbeliever and you support this church, I want to thank you. But I also want to urge you to do what Paul said the Macedonians did, which is to first give yourself to the Lord. The next thing, though, that we learn from this verse is that we should give cheerfully. He says, God loves a cheerful giver. Now, I suppose he'll receive it from a grouch as well, but it makes God glad when we're glad to give. Now, at this point, as I was writing my sermon, I thought back to an incident when I was working at one of the restaurants I was employed at. There was a waitress I worked with whose name was Nancy. And Nancy was originally from Philly, but she moved to Minnesota. And Nancy was Irish, and she had a bit of a bite to her personality. Well, one time when I was working with her, uh, she went to clear off one of the tables where a guy had just finished eating. And I'm not sure why, but this guy left her a tip of like 10 pennies. Now, she was not happy. She chased him as he was walking to his car in the parking lot and threw the 10 pennies at him, yelling, Excuse me, sir, you forgot your change. Now, the ushers won't throw the money back at you if you put it in a plate with a scowl on your face, but God would be more pleased if you did it with a smile. Well, maybe they should ask another question. Where should we give? Where should we give? Well, I think um, the first place you're responsible to give is to your own local church. Your own local church. You know, the church is the only institution that Jesus founded. Christian colleges, para-church ministries uh, all have value, but only to the degree that they aid the church in its mission of getting the gospel out and discipling believers. So if you're a Christian, you have a responsibility to provide support for those who feed you and watch over your souls spiritually. In the Old Testament, the tithe was to go to the Levites, uh, the tribe that functioned as teachers who were scattered across the nation. In the New Testament, there are a number of passages that show that these same principles are to continue in the church as far as supporting. When Jesus sent out his disciples on the first trip, he told them to enter the town and village and accept hospitality from those who were willing to take them in. In Luke 10, 7, he says, that, Stay in the house, eating and drinking whatever they put before you, for the laborer is worthy of his wages. Paul asked the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 9, 13 to 14, he says, Do you not know that those who perform the sacred services eat the food of the temple and those who attend regularly to the altar have their share from the altar? So also the Lord directed that those who proclaim the gospel are to get their living from the gospel. Now sometimes uh, pastors have to work besides pastoring. I know for the 30 years that I've been a pastor, I spent about... I don't know, about 15 years of it working a secular job besides. Uh, Chris, as our youth pastor, still works a secular job. We're a small church, but we support two pastors. And part of the reason we're able to do so is because we've worked jobs outside of church. And churches aren't supposed to be stingy when it comes to paying a pastor. Paul tells us in 1 Timothy 5, 17 to 18, the elder who rules well is to be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who work hard at preaching and teaching. For the scripture says, you shall not muzzle the ox while he's threshing out our threshing, and the laborer is worthy of his hire. Galatians 6.6 6 says that the one who's taught the word should share all good things with those who teach him. But the scripture balances commands like that with reminders to pastors as well. 1 Peter 5.1-2 says this, Therefore, I exhort the elders among you, meaning the pastors, as a fellow elder and witness of the suffering of Christ and a partaker also of the glory that is to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but voluntarily, according to the will of God, and not for sordid gain, but with eagerness, not lording it over the flock, or not, or not lording it over them, 
those who are lorded to, uh, allotted to your charge, but prove yourself to be examples of the flock. Well, the second thing, though, we need to say is beyond giving to your local church, you should give to ministries that have been a blessing to you or that you believe will be a great blessing to others. Just make sure you're careful that these organizations are handling their money well. Well, let's ask another question. Why should you give? Well, you should give so that you can be blessed in this life and rewarded in the next. Paul says this, And God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that always having, enough, having all sufficiency in everything, you may have an abundance for every good deed. As it is written, He scattered abroad, He gave to the poor, His righteousness endures forever. Now he who supplies seed for the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. In other words, God will give you what you need so that you can give more. It says in Proverbs 3, 9 to 10, it says, Honor the Lord with your wealth and from the first of all your produce so that your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will overflow with new wine. Now, if you're generous in your giving, God will give you more to give away. R.G. Letourneau. He was an inventor and an entrepreneur who uh, made earth-moving vehicles. Known as God's businessman, early in life he decided that he would tithe on his income. But over the years, as God prospered him, he increased the percentage he gave. Eventually, he was giving away 90% of his salary and company profits for God and living on the other 10%. Now, someone asked him about this one time, and he said this. He said, you know, I kept shoveling my profits to God, and he kept shoveling them back. I guess he was using a bigger shovel than I was. Well, he scattered abroad. He gave to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. Paul told Timothy this, Instruct those who are rich in this present world, which, by the way, would be all of us, not to be conceited or to fix their hope on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly supplies us with all things to enjoy. Instruct them to be rich in good deeds and works, to be generous and ready to share, storing up for themselves a treasure of a good foundation for the future, so that they might take hold of that which is life indeed. 1 Timothy 6, 17-19. Well, we should also do so to be a blessing to others. Verse 11-12 to 12 says this, You will enrich, be enriched in everything for all liberality, which through us is producing thanksgiving to God. For the ministry of this service is not only fully supplying the needs of the saints, but also overflowing through many thanksgivings to God. That brings us to the last one there, to bring glory to God. He says this in verses 13 to 14. Because of the proof given by this ministry, they will glorify God for your obedience to your confession of the gospel of Christ and for your liberality and your contributions to them all, while they also, by prayers on your behalf, yearn for you because of the surpassing grace in you. Thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. I have to say, I am thankful that in our church, um, the people have always been generous um, with me and Pastor Chris and in giving. And we even have lots of people who don't attend our church who give generously. Um, you know, it made me think about a conversation I had with my older brother. He attends a fairly large church in the metro area. I think he said there's about a thousand people go to it. And he was on their budget committee at one time. And he mentioned to me um, that year, he asked me what uh, our budget was. And I said our budget at that time was about $125,000. And he mentioned that the church that he attended, the budget was about three hundred and fifty. dollars Now, that's three times what we make or bring in in our church. But what was interesting about it, though, was our church had about 70 people at the time. Their church had 1,000. 
our church is in a rural area where people don't make much money. Their church was in an urban area, suburban area, where people are paid very well. And yet, almost nobody in their church gave. Now, what's sadder yet was when he told me that in their church, they had an Awana program reaching young people, most of whom didn't go to their church, and they had 200 kids who were involved in it. But they canceled it. They canceled it because they couldn't find volunteers to work with it. Now, my guess is the reason they gave so little money is because they didn't do what the Macedonians did, which is first give themselves to God. Instead, they just attend for the show, and when the show is over, they go home. That's not the way God wants us to be. He wants us to be generous givers because his son gave all that he had that we might become rich. May God make us that way as his children, even as his son. We pray a blessing now in Jesus' name. Amen.